Hey friends, welcome back. This week is the continuation of last week's episode, so this is part two. If you haven't heard part one, you might go back and take a listen, as it does frame um, frame the discussion that is continuing. I had the opportunity to interview Dr. Anita Foman from Westchester University in Pennsylvania and hear her insights around DNA testing and what that means for racial identity, especially since she conducts studies and is uh, running her DNA discussion project. It's really interesting to hear about how people shape their narrative, if at all, once they get their results from their DNA test. And I have also been curious about how this all plays a part into race as a social construct. So where does that fit in with science? All, all very fascinating. Of course, again, I don't have all the answers, but I did ask when I could, and I would love to have your insights too. So uh, take a listen and uh, send me your feedback. So here we go. Enjoy. Welcome to Tribe and True, hosted by Shauna Gann. Join her as she explores the challenges of being a racial riddle, an ethnic enigma, and a cultural conundrum. Let's dive in. So, yeah, back to the the idea of being racially ambiguous. Um, I asked Dr. Foman about this, and, and I was wondering you know, what do you think influences whether or not someone is perfectly okay with being racially ambiguous? Why are some people okay with it and some people aren't? So do you think, you know, we just kind of talked about trends right now, the societal trends, or hopefully, like you said, maybe it's not a trend. Maybe it's just the way life is now. You know, things are, you are a bit more free to be who you are. Mm-hmm. Uh, or maybe it has something to do with your family and your upbringing and how secure you feel in your um, culture and, and the and your race or your narrative anyway. And then I also wondered if it has something to do with like your socioeconomic positioning. Mm. So as we know from history, it was beneficial if someone presented as white, if they could pass as white. There were certainly sacrifices that went along with that, right? Mm-hmm. Like you had to kind of the any um black family that you had you you couldn't really claim them you had to kind of turn your back on that in order to be successful Mm -hmm. in your efforts to pass but there were certain social benefits to doing so so I also wonder if how someone chooses to identify and whether or not they apply the concept of hypodescent to themselves if it has something to do with how secure they are um, in society too, you know, mm-hmm. I don't know. So in all of this talk about the differences between race versus ethnicity versus culture and how some of them have to do with your genetic makeup, but some of them just have to do with sort of the way you live. It makes me think about a woman named Rachel Dolezal. So Rachel She started kind of changing her outward appearance in 2009. Rachel was born as a white woman. She has two white parents, but she adopted a black identity like in 2009. And she took it so far that 
the way she changed her appearance. She was perming her hair so that it was really tight curls. She was also darkening her skin color. But it went so far that she actually became a member of the NAACP. And more so, she became the president of the Spokane chapter of the NAACP. Now, I mean, this came out um, in 2015. Her parents definitely verified that she was white. She was born white. At some point, she had uh, a, an interview, and she kept referring to her stepfather as if her white father was a stepfather. Mm-hmm. And she was referring to another man who was a, a friend of hers that was a black man. She was referring to him as her father. So she was sort of misleading people and and so on. But she really, really felt strongly that deep inside she was a black woman. Now, we live in a time where we're talking about identity in all ways, right? Because we are definitely much more than race and culture and ethnicity, right? We are, there's so many different facets to who we are. What do you think about this um, idea of being transracial, not mm-hmm. just adopting a culture, but actually identifying as a completely different ethnicity and changing yourself to present that way. Yeah. I mean, I looked into her story some more and I was, I was shocked, you know, to say the least. Uh, I think it's, you know, it's one thing if you are um, black or whatever you are, and you have both um, backgrounds, and you just, you know, decide to take on one. I've never heard a story of someone being, um, you know, 100%, you know, white or black and going the opposite way, basically. Um, And I guess it wouldn't surprise me as much as if a black person could pass um, for white, um, it really surprised me the opposite way, which, you know, maybe that's not the correct way to look at it either, but only because, you know, black women, especially, you know, they face more discrimination in, you know, the workplace, right. Or whatever pay gap, um, different beauty norms. And so I just think it's, it's shocking, uh, that, she would go the other way and it was adopted over time right like it wasn't yeah some years right. like over a period of six or seven years right um and then to take it as far as to then become um a president of a black organization um yeah it's it's right. something to talk about for sure <laughs> So I I do have some more to say, but I wanted to share what Dr. Foman had to say. When I hear African-Americans, they basically are saying it is not so much that she's not genetically African-American because African-Americans run the gamut. And who knows, maybe some test would say she had a couple of percent of African. But two things. First, that she did not grow up in the African-American experience, identifying it was something that she took on. And second, that it's the misrepresentation that she lied about her background. She changed her skin color because many of us know, I know African-Americans who look 
every bit as light as she did as a white person. And so I wouldn't question somebody's background based on how they look, but it was this performance of, of being black. And I have also heard several people say, why couldn't she be an ally? Why did she feel that she had to take on this identity? Because we can certainly use white people who understand the African-American experience and who are going to advocate it. And the final thing that for me that really hit home is uh, one young African-American male said, yeah, now white people can be everything, even black. How far would I get if I said, oh, no, I'm really white? So I think until those things are resolved, that we have to be careful about somebody taking on. Um, I have many times tested somebody who was white, who had a little bit of African ancestry, and particularly in the case of white men, they have said, no, I would not change my identity. I'd still say I'm a white male. And initially, my co-researcher and I, my co-researcher is, is Asian, said it was because, you know, they're white. Why would they dilute being, you know, having the, the most most um, powerful background with saying, you know, I'm part a minority or marginalized group. But when I dug deeper into that, really pushed by a white guy who said he didn't just accept that uh, explanation, the whole cloth, when I talked to some of these white males, what they said is, I would never presume to call myself black because my experience does not allow me to do that. So I think when somebody like Rachel Dolezal says, I'm going to be transracial, even if she decides to accept that for the rest of her life, that she's making a, a choice that um, many people cannot make. And as I said, as an ally, she could be awesome. I'm not sure why she um, has decided to, to, to change the race. I don't feel as strongly about it as some other people do. But I, through dialogue, have really sort of come to the feeling that she could probably, you know, be more helpful, though that's not her goal. Her goal is to express what she feels her identity is, that she could probably more be more helpful in other ways. But, you know, as an individual, we have freedom of choice. Wow. So <laughs> there's a lot there. Yeah. Certainly freedom of choice, but also mm -hmm. the idea of um, having that choice w where other people might not and what that means for those people. Right. What are your thoughts? I think, yeah, just again, I think it's just shocking that she took these steps to change her appearance because it was um, slightly deceptive, I guess. Oh, no, know? it wasn't slightly. Um, <laughs> it was like. It just it's pretty deceptive, yeah. right? Well, like, yeah, not only did she, her stepfather, who's her real father, and then you adopt this, you know, friend and say he's your father, right? You know, that's, I think that's where it goes wrong, right? She could have definitely been an ally. Um, I think sometimes we think we can't, like, if I have this, um, presence, I can make maybe more of a difference, right? You know, so she's like, oh, I want to work for the NAACP, so I gotta, you know, have some color on my skin, right? Um, maybe to be more effective, but I don't know if that's actually the case, or maybe even just to get the opportunity, 
Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I guess I question her motive. Like, yes. I'm not sure that her motivation for changing her outward appearance was to be a better servant to the community and the NAACP. Um, because a little right. bit more about her story, like she's actually called the police to report crimes against her um, for discrimination or other racial harassment as a black woman. Mm-hmm. Well, and then uh, something to add since you're on this, um, I was listening to an interview um, that she had done with the Today Show and she had at Howard University, she had filed a claim um, for discrimination as a pregnant white woman. So I guess my other problem, you know, with whatever she's doing is how can you slide between, how can you slide between both is my, I, my question, I suppose, because I mean, I guess I could, but not really, you know. Well, okay, so it's interesting because that goes back to racial fluidity. Fluidity is the the right term, and people who are multiracial, I think, are more open to the idea of fluidity. However, and and none of this is to a person in most cases, uh, if somebody strongly identifies, for example, as biracial, I'm half this and half that, other things can surprise them as, as well. We interviewed and tested somebody who identified as half Asian and half Scandinavian. Well, she found a lot of African in her background. Right. And that was very disorienting for her because she was committed to a narrative of being biracial in a particular way. Other people who will say, you know, I have a little of this, little of that, you know, are not surprised that something might pop up in their backgrounds. And again, I would say people who identify as Latinx are the most likely to say, like, anything might be in my background. And so they know that that ethnicity is is uh, not tied to genetics. They will tie it to other things like language or certain experiences. But um, it, it really it depends where somebody starts. And as uh, you were right to say, people who identify as multiracial because I find plenty of people who have multiracial backgrounds, every bit as multiracial as somebody who identifies as biracial or multiracial or whatever. And it's just, they have totally different identifications. You can have the same profile and a different identification. You can have different profiles and the same identification. So does that mean that there's rules? (laughs) Are there rules to who is allowed to be racially fluid and who isn't? Do we have to have that genetic piece to decide, okay, look, I have this in my my makeup and I have this in my makeup and I, you know, do slide back and forth depending upon my situation or who I'm with or whatever, you know, but maybe for her because she does not have those other things in her makeup, maybe she doesn't have the right to be racially fluid. My question came into another level of ethics. I was wondering about the social aid, financial aid, the other things that are out there to support minorities because 
of the social hierarchy that exists in our country. And it was my concern that someone who decides to pass, if you will, or be transracial in a different direction. So instead of uh, hypodescent being something inflicted upon them, but something that they adopt without having that other piece that makes them a minority, what are the ramifications of that? Can you begin to apply for things because you've decided that you feel like you're black? <laughs> well, I'm going to apply for the scholarship because I've decided I feel like a black woman. Right. I mean, I think that goes back to just the identity piece. If people feel comfortable, they will apply, right? But I feel like most people have, you know, whatever their perception is of the world, right? But I think people would be like, I can't apply for this because, you know, X, Y, Z. Or, and I will also say that some scholarships have, like, um, in their fine print, they have, like, minimums, right? So, um you know, do not quote me, but I know like for Native American to be considered that in some universities, you have to pass like, you know, I I don't know what it is, but it's like 25%. And I think that kind of goes back to what I was saying of, well, I have one, (laughs) one eighth, you know, what does that give me? (laughs) Well, right, exactly. At what point do you qualify for AIDS? As a minority. And so, you know, and that opens up the whole discussion of privilege, right? White privilege and light privilege, because a lot of those things are in place because of these social hierarchies, which is why sometimes there are these complicating factors with colorism, where one person feels like they're more deserving because they have more hardship because they present a different way than another person, but does that make that other person less black Mm -hmm. or, or more white or whatever? Right. Yeah, I, I agree. So I did pose this question to Dr. Foman. I really wanted to hear, you know, her thoughts on that. And actually I'm going to share the rest of the interview I had with her. The insight is just really interesting. In the early days when I tested people and I would find somebody who was white, who had a little African ancestry, the first thing that they said is, can I get a scholarship? And I thought it was interesting that they thought the most advantageous thing about being black was to get a scholarship. And, and we certainly know that there are people who, you know, if, if there are scholarships or whatever, will start to identify as, you know, things that they never even thought about identifying as, um, that somebody might identify as, as white in their day-to-day life but if there's, you know, a scholarship or whatever for Latinx people or a scholarship for this ethnicity or that ethnicity. And so that's these tests, you are so right, are bringing this up in a very potent way because how do we now decide who qualifies as this or that or the other? Yes. Yes. So that's been a big question mark in my mind too. Like, you know, um, was, you know, we, we don't have to get into the politics of it today, but I was thinking about Elizabeth Warren and, you know, her um, discussion about Native being Native American and how much is enough to claim that for a privilege versus just part being part of your um, 
narrative. So I don't know, maybe that's something we all have to kind of stay tuned <laughs> or I don't know, perhaps that'll be worked into your studies too. But uh, yeah, that was something that was interesting uh, um, to me. Well, and, and of course, uh, Native Americans want to have control over those identifications. So not uh, finding a little bit of Native American in your DNA is not adequate in most instances to qualify for something for an indigenous group. Mm -hmm. But it makes you wonder if other groups will begin to, uh, to start to have those discussions too. So, well, I, I just have one more question for you um, regarding uh, the concept of the DNA testing and so on. So some people say that, you know, we have moved quite a bit forward in terms of racial equality and acceptance, tolerance, and we've really moved forward when it comes to the inclusion piece. You know, diversity is there. People are, you know, acknowledging the need to have diversity, but the inclusion piece is also pretty pretty big. But some folks are are concerned that the um, way that these DNA tests are becoming so much more prolific, and this conversation is coming up a lot more, that it might be sending us backwards. In that, you know, we've been talking about race as a social construct for a long time, and you know kind of debunking that idea that we're all different, you know, races, so to speak, versus that ethnic piece that you you brought in, you know, the difference between culture and actual, you know, genetic makeup. What do you think about that? Um, do you think that having these tests could kind of make people revert to uh, thinking about race could as... Reify race mm -hmm. as real? Um. Well, first of all, we are 99.9% .9 the same. And one of the things that has come up in these tests is we don't always know what that other 0.1% is. Um, and, and some of this has implications for things like precision medicine, etc. I will also say this, um, just whether you're talking about genetic tests or the Bible, uh, people use information in all kinds of ways. And we really have to look to the human heart. Uh, uh, fundamentally, people have a right to um, live a, a free, full life, and uh, human diversity, just like diversity in everything else, you know, in in the world, is valuable and important. And I don't think these genetic tests are going to change the human heart. I think they open up the opportunity for conversation. But there didn't have to be one DNA test to have all kinds of genocide all over the world. So I think it would be incorrect to blame these tests to, you know, for making us more conscious of race and racial differences. So I would say my view is that these tests are an opportunity for us to talk about how connected we are, especially when we find things in their background that are just surprising and to explore the narratives of our ancestors that helped us to survive. And many of the things in our genetic backgrounds got there because of a grisly past, whatever your race or ethnicity might be. So um, I don't worry about these tests. Uh, I worry about us taking any opportunity to connect ourselves rather than to divide ourselves. 
<laughs> really super curious what our listeners um, can add to this this conversation. Um, anything? Any other thoughts that you have about the topic today? I will definitely be looking more into some of her studies just to learn more about it. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Okay. All right. Well, well, thanks, Shannon, for joining me again. No problem. We'll be doing it again soon. (laughs) Sounds good. All right. Take care. Well, that's the show for this week. So glad that you joined. And I do hope that you have subscribed so that you never miss an episode. Also, I'm looking for some new artists to share music. I love music and I love to share it. So if you or someone you know has something you'd like featured on Tribe and True, please send it my way. You can send me a message at tribe at seanagan.com. Be safe out there, y'all. Remember to share a smile with someone. It does go a long way. And find an opportunity to make someone feel welcome. Love y'all. Talk to you soon.